you would open your copy of the scriptures and join me in 1 Samuel this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 3. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, there should be a Bible in the, cho- in the chair in front of you that you are welcome to use. And if you would like to take that home with you as a gift from South Canyon Baptist Church, we'd love to bless you with it. The theme, as it were, for today's message is going to be this. Simply, we need God's Word, and God is gracious to give it to us. Okay, so as you're turning to page 227 in the hymn Bibles, or you're working your way to 1 Samuel chapter 3, we saw last week a very, very sobering word to this priest and his family as the result of their unrepentant sin, And this week, we see that story continues in 1 Samuel chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 on down to the first part of chapter 4. Just so you know, our chapter divisions and verses are not inspired, although God's Word is. They're just helpful tools to help us find places in it. And so I think the thought ends at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 4, halfway through that first verse. So that's what our text is going to be this morning. But I want to bring your attention to the fact that we need God's word and God is gracious to give it to us. Looking at verse 1, chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now jump down to verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You see, right there we have the bookends of this chapter and the thought that God is communicating to us. This passage opens with the notation that God's word was rare in those days and it ends with the clarification that now that rareness is over because of God's grace. God's word had come to his prophet Samuel, and then through the prophet it has come to all Israel. Now our eyes, I, doubt, I don't doubt that as we read through this passage this week in preparation for today, we were probably quickly passed over that phrase that God's word was rare in those days. I want us to take a moment and force ourselves to slow down and reread them and then to reflect on their significance. What does it mean? That God's word was rare. Think about this. This is the place where the ark was. The tabernacle was set up in the town of Shiloh. It was the place where God said, where that ark is, I will be with my people. My presence, you can be assured, will be there. Come to me. Cast your burdens upon me. I will forgive you of your sins. We will worship together you and I, as a covenant community. And yet, there is no word of God there. It's sobering, isn't it? 
There's a famine of God's word at the very place you would expect to hear from him. Further, we have to think about this. How do you force God to speak? Can a man do that? Can we uh, coerce him, as it were, by baiting him with our good deeds and our good works? Can we somehow entice him to tell us something that we need? No, we cannot. Unless God speaks, we cannot hear from him. And let me just add to it, no man's word is a substitute for God's. So why, if there's this famine of the word at Shiloh, if God's word is not going forth among his people, why is that taking place? Again, the context helps us understand what is taking place. There's this persistent cycle in the nation of Israel of disobedience. Samuel bookends to the book of Judges. And historically, what we see taking place in the book of Judges, I don't think it's written on a chronological, you know, from 1999 till 2020 or whatever. It's not written that way. It's written to show us this cycle that keeps taking place in the nation of Israel where they disobey God and they go and they start worshiping other gods and then God gives them over to a neighboring nation to make them slaves. The oppression is so bad, the people of Israel then remember God's promised them better things than this. God, in fact, is our covenant God, and they cry out to him for mercy. He delivers through a judge, and then they serve him for the life of that judge, and then they go back to their ways, and it just keeps repeating over and over and over again. And we think we're unique, right? We're just like that. And so this is the cycle of what's taking place here. And in fact, if you go back to Judges 13, you will see that God gave the Philistines rule over Israel for 40 years. And then Samson was raised up. Now, Samson was the worst of the judges, which is why he comes to the end of the book. Because we are seeing that now the leaders of Israel are no longer morally good guys to be modeled after. They're just like the people. And then we have from Samson, it goes to Eli. And so is there any wonder why there's a famine of God's word at Shiloh when the priest allows his sons to commit adultery in the temple? Where the priest's sons are stealing from the worshipers. Where the priest will rebuke his sons, but he doesn't remove his sons. This is a desperate, desperate situation. And so, as, the, as we come to this, we see that there's continuity between Judges and 1 Samuel. There's a growing darkness and sinfulness in Israel as 1 Samuel opens up with this glaring picture of what's taking place even within the priesthood. And thus, the debasement of God's people pursuing sinful things, God is now pulling his hand back. And his silence reveals his understanding that his people prefer to walk in darkness rather than light. And this wouldn't be the last time these kinds of words are said. When God will announce his judgment on Israel in centuries to come in the book of Amos, here's what he says in verses 11 and 12. No longer will God's judgment be just in the form of abasement and slavery and uh, suffering and death and destruction and war and famine. But the Lord says this, I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. We get to the book of the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 28, and Saul, the king, becomes painfully aware as he sought God by Urim, the priest doing their thing, and by the prophets, and by prayer and dreams and visions, God would not answer him. And Saul began to realize the very night before he died that, in fact, God wasn't just not speaking to him anymore, but God had taken his presence from him. Bottom line. The word of God is a gift to his people. This is a heavy word to share with us today. It was rare in those days. The good news is, as we saw already just reading the end of the chapter, is that God is about to speak, and he has raised up a prophet for his people. God is speaking For those who are like righteous Hannah, that news had to bring incredible comfort to them. God has not forsaken his people. Now, what are we to do with this today? Here we sit. You know, I I did some research. Thankfully, Google is a helpful assistant. And I found out that the Word of God, the Bible, has sold in some estimates over 7 billion copies. The most... Highest sales of any book in history. And they admit that those numbers could be quite off because uh, so many churches produce copies of it and it's not reported in the sense of with any statistic company or anything like that. And we just hand them out and we spread them. So does it sound like today that we live in the same days that Samuel did where there was a famine of God's word in the land? How many copies of the Bible do you have at home? I did some quick math this week, and I have at least 20 copies in digital or hardback, or bound, printed versions. So here we could say, that oh no, there's no famine of God's word. I mean, we're giving away Bibles. You can take a blue Bible. You're not stealing from the church. We're giving them to you. We've got Bibles to spare. There's stacks of them in different rooms to use in teaching. So can we say that God's word is rare today? Well, let me just ask you this. In Samuel's day, God's word was rare because God stopped speaking to his sinful people. Is it possible that today God's word is rare because we stopped listening? We may have billions of copies, but are we listening to God Like stubborn Israel, we have access to God's word and choose to ignore him. Isaiah 6 will say this, God judges his people. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, you're going to preach my word to these people, and it's going to make their hearts dull and their ears heavy and their eyes blind. You see, Jesus said in his parable of the sower who went out to sow the seed, he said that to hear God's voice is a gift of grace. When he was alone, those around with him, uh, the twelve, they asked him about the parables, and Jesus said to him, said to them, 
To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that indeed they may see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Those words come from Jesus in Mark chapter 4. You see, if God doesn't speak, if he doesn't change hearts, we are lost and we have no hope. This is the heaviness of the word. And what ought to shock us in this chapter is the absence of any mention of the people of Israel crying out for the word. They have no appetite for it. They're no longing. They don't realize they're missing it. Their corruption is so absolute, both within the people and within the priesthood, that there is no hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So what are we to do? Well, the New Testament opens with a sobering similarity to what we read here in 1 Samuel. Once again, Israel was in darkness. And then God sent his son into the world to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. And we read this from Matthew chapter 4 and verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time forward, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So how should we respond to the fact that either we haven't heard God's voice, we, we don't care for God's word to have any authority over us? How should we respond? It's not to just bury our heads in the sand. It's not to plug our ears. It's not to allow ourselves to become what the parable says of a people who are there but don't get it, who are hearing it but aren't interested, who are seeing it but don't care. We need to repent of our sin and cry out to Jesus. We need beg God to open our hearts and our ears so that we might hear and believe his word. Now, I... I don't know about you, but this happened to me Friday. I got so engrossed in the work that I was doing that I totally didn't eat breakfast, I didn't eat lunch, I didn't eat, I didn't eat until supper time. You ever been that way? I mean, you're playing the video games, teens, I know this is you because I've observed it firsthand, right? Like, do you want to eat? No. I'm in the middle of, this is like the final minute of this game, or we're about ready to break this thing open, and we're in a battle mode on Clash of Clans, whatever it is. You get so immersed in what you're doing, everything else can be put aside. And I wonder, perhaps, that might be an analogy for us spiritually to explain our lack of appetite for God. We're so busy doing life. I mean, it's 2022. Everything's at our fingertips. It's the fall, right? We're back in school and sports are going on. Work is amping up. we got a big project and a deadline. And this stuff, this hearing from God, isn't as important as hearing from my wife or my kids or hearing from my husband or my boss. The demands on us are so pressing. We feel as though there is no time to sit and listen. Let me just tell you, friend, the best thing you can do is to practice the spiritual discipline of reading God's word and abiding with him. This, this is, coming to church is good, and I'm glad you're here this morning. 
We're thankful for your presence, but our spirit needs more than just an hour or two of God a week. We have the word, so let us, let us read it during the week. And thankfully, there are many ways in which you can be helped along in your spiritual growth of Bible reading and study. Not just drink it, although it's good to just read large portions of Scripture and just read it so you can see the themes and the flow and the ebb of Scripture. But we also need to study it. You know, there are numerous men's and women's Bible studies taking place. You'll see them on the announcement screens before we get started on Sunday mornings. They're in your bulletin. You are not alone in the effort to know God better and to hear his voice. We, if, you wanna, if you're interested in doing one-to-one Bible reading or joining a triad where three people get together and read Scripture and talk about it and wrestle with it, contact the church office. We'd be happy to plug you into a group or to start a new one. If you're a member here at South Canyon, then we encourage you to plug into a life group and do more than just know people, but study the Word together. I've spent a lot of time here on the bookends, so let's just jump into verses 2 through 10. And what we see here is that the gentle and gracious God calls his prophet. I'm going to repeat that. This is kind of the the title, as it were, of this section, verses 2 through 10. The gentle and gracious God calls his prophet. In these verses, we see an old man. Verse 3, or verse 2, his eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. Eli's lying down in his place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. That's kind of a time in the night where the incense that was set out and the candle was lit, it was still running. In the mornings, they would come in and they would open the curtains and they would put in new incense and light the candle. So it's somewhere in the middle of the night. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called, called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Speak, for your servant hears. The gentle and gracious God calls his prophet. We see an old man whose eyesight is gone and whose initial discernment is lacking as well. And then we see an eager boy who is ready to come to his mentor, his master, his leader, old Eli, and yet he has no knowledge of the Holy One of Israel. 
He's been ministering to God in spite of not knowing him. Verse 7 isn't meant to say Samuel's at fault for not knowing the Lord and his voice. It's just stating the fact. He hadn't yet met God. But in these verses, we learn so much more about God than we do about old Eli or young Samuel. You see, God intends to reveal himself out of his covenant-keeping grace. Israel loves the darkness. God intends to speak and draw his people back to himself. And do you see the patience of God in this? I mean, this isn't a thick-headed young boy. He's not stubborn. He's, he is going where he expects to be summoned to. He's going to Eli. He doesn't know God's voice. He doesn't understand what's taking place. And yet God is patient, as he calls this young boy, three times. In fact, four before they had their conversation. Until Eli finally understands what's going on, young Samuel is not even rebuked by God for not knowing who it was that was talking to him. God's patient with him. Let me say, God is patient with us as well. You see, God does not wait for us to get it all figured out. He finds us where we are. You will never clean yourself up enough to gain God's attention. He cleans up sinners. And we ought to be thankful for that. He finds us in the midst of our pornography. He finds us in the midst of our lies. He finds us in the midst of our cheating, of our greed, of our rebellion, of our anger, our hatred. He finds us, and then he calls us to himself. This is how good and gracious our God is. Regardless of where you are in life right now as a student, whether you're married or single, widowed or divorced, retired or working, whether you are muddling and just trying to make it one day after another, or whether life is going great for you and it's all gravy, it's all downhill, whether you are driven by your passions and your career or their sinful desires, God is coming this morning and he is calling your name. Christian, I want you to think back for a moment. Think back to the circumstances of when you were saved. Remember your life at that moment and all that God had orchestrated to grab your attention? Whatever that may be for you, think back to that time when God called you to himself. And then I want you to go back just a little bit further to reflect and to see if you can count on the many times in which God spoke to you before you finally came to understand whose voice it was. Man, that'll blow your mind. I was 19, almost 19 years old. I grew up going to a church like this where God's word was preached every week. My dad was the preacher. So I sat there and I heard it all the time. I went to summer camps as a youth. How many times God is patient and gracious to call our names? If that's the only thing you remember then I hope you will leave today knowing that God knows who you are personally and he is bending low to whisper in your ear, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Let's move on again. Let's look at verses 11 through 18. 
And what we see here is not only that God is gentle and gracious to call his prophet, but we see that there is a responsibility that comes. Hearing God's voice will create attention for you. We see this in verses 11 through 18. Hearing God's voice will create a tension in your life. Look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Hearing God's voice is going to create tension in your life. God says that his message to this young Samuel is going to When word gets out, it's going to cause everyone's ears to burn. In verse 11, he's about to pour out his judgment on Eli's family, that judgment that he announced to us in chapter 2, but could be years or could have been many months before. It's now coming to pass. And the reason for that judgment is found in verse 13. Eli's sons disrespected God, not once, but continually. And Eli didn't restrain them. And then there's such a sobering and awful word. A word that is so troubling in verse 14. Therefore, this unrepentant wickedness will not be forgiven. How's that for your first encounter with God? This is a huge burden for this young man to carry. And two things in the text make it clear to me that God intended Samuel not only to just hear God's backstory of what's going to take place as an observer. Hey, Samuel, I want to clue you in. I think God wanted or told Samuel this, and the expectation was Samuel was going to carry this message to Eli. And here's why I think that. You look at verse 13. God says, I declare to him, that's Eli, So God is giving a message to young Samuel so that that message will get to its destination, Eli. God wants it to be very clear. It's God speaking to Eli a word of judgment. And then again, in verse 15, if Samuel is just a fly on the wall in this experience, why was he afraid to tell Eli? We could draw from what's spoken here that he lay until morning, lay awake. This is a boy that knows when dawn comes, destruction will follow. This is going to be a message that will upset the apple cart in every sense of the word. 
Humanly speaking, we have to assume that a bond has developed between these two, and for good reason. Hannah had entrusted Eli with the care of her young son. Eli calls Samuel his son. It's no doubt that eager and obedient Samuel was a refreshing change from Eli's own sons. And so there's no question that Samuel was burdened by this message. He lay there until morning, turning it over and over in his mind. What would this young boy do with what he had been told? The message that he had been given, what would he do then? Well, thankfully, in some sense, Eli was determined to know what God said. He even put Samuel under a curse if he doesn't tell him everything in verse 17. And so Samuel does. I want us to break from this text for a moment and think about what we know about the Bible and history. Maybe you've heard of a prophet named Elijah. He called down fire from heaven. His protege, Elisha, took a cloak and smote the Jordan River and caused it to part and crossed on dry land. Elisha raised the dead. He healed a leper. So we may think being a prophet's easy and kind of cool, right? Like, I'm going to pray, fire's going to come and consume Joel's piano. That would be bad. But let me dispel any illusion that being a prophet is easy, because nothing could be further from the truth. As soon as Samuel is called by God, he's given a difficult task. He has to speak truth to power. He has to confront his mentor, his caregiver, his friend, and tell him that his sin is so great, God will not forgive him. We know this aspect of being a prophet wasn't unique to Samuel alone. He's not the only one in Scripture. I've already mentioned Elijah and Elisha, and you know the stories. If you know the stories, you know that they faced danger as well. Reading through the Bible, I was, came across a passage in Ezekiel where that prophet was also given a difficult message from God. It was to be a, a sign to those Israelites who were in captivity in Babylon of the de- coming destruction of the temple, the place they held most sacred. And God said, Ezekiel, I'm going to take the thing that's most precious to you in this world. I'm going to take it from you. Tomorrow your wife is going to die. And I don't want you to mourn. I don't want you to tear your clothes. I don't want you to stop bathing. I don't want you to do all the cultural signs of mourning, throwing dirt on your head, walking around wailing and weeping. I want you to take my message. Being a prophet of God is not easy. You could go through Jeremiah and Daniel and Amos and uh, Isaiah and on and on we go. God would give signs to his people through his prophets. And these men, flawed, weak men, encountered great difficulties in the discharge of their divine duties. Now I've heard preachers, and perhaps you have too, who appear to enjoy telling people how sinful they are. It's almost like they get off on it. They are eager to criticize and break people down to play games and mind control with them. I've also heard preachers who refuse to mention sin at all, who only want to just like love on people and speak encouraging, warm, fuzzy words, never want to offend. 
They only want to be positive and encouraging. Let me tell you that neither preacher is actually loving. And neither is rightly representing God's truth. This is the hard word. God's word contains both judgment and grace. You see, he judges sinners and he warns them of the dangers if they do not repent. He offers his grace to all who will repent. And then he has a word for those who follow him. He calls them to follow him, disciples them in a real sense. He instructs them and he corrects them. And he speaks a message of hope to them. I will change you. You can't change you, but I will change you. The struggles that you have, yes, they trip you up. Yes, they do it daily. But I'm going to give you victory over this. Not in some radical, crazy sense, but I will help you to persevere in fighting and resisting the flesh and saying yes to my spirit. Both tensions have to be held based on the text that's being expounded. And here in this text, we hear a word of judgment and we have a word of hope. God is speaking to his people. People who need to hear his word. And we see that God is gracious to give it. Preaching is by its very nature designed by God to afflict those who are comfortable in their sin and comfort those who are inflicted in this world. The same is true today. Faithful preachers don't adjust God's message. We speak his truth in its entirety. But make no mistake, there is no pleasure in preaching a message of judgment. We speak difficult truths because of God's character and his truth is at stake. And our souls, your souls, hang in the balance. Because of God's love in us, we shrink back. We cringe as people hear this message but we must speak the truth in love. Now, let's get down to verses 19 through the beginning of chapter 4. We're going to close with this thought. Grace received is a grace to be shared. Grace received is a grace to be shared. We've just unpacked a little bit of being God's prophet is a sobering responsibility. The grace of God shown in calling Samuel, didn't turn Samuel into someone who abused his office now. He didn't use his political power, his, uh, his role to gain for himself a following for his own personal benefit or political benefit or public benefit. What Samuel does, as we read in verse 19, he grew with the Lord and the Lord was with him. The Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet from the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. You see, God shows us who he is through this book. You want signs and wonders? You want miracles? You want healings? You want see demons cast out? It's in this book. God created the world once. Does he have to recreate it every day to prove to us he has the power to do that? Do we need to see someone who's paralyzed, set free from that paralysis, and walking again, jumping? 
Do we need to see dead people who have been in a grave for four days and whose bodies no doubt stink when there's no preservations and embalming taking place? Do we need to see them walking and smelling sweet again to know that God can do that? It's in the Word. It's in the book. He's written these things for our benefit. His Word is to be received, and that is how we know Him. That is how we know how to rightly relate to him. And this grace, once received, is now a grace to be shared. And I want to show you how Samuel does this. He faithfully gave God's word to all Israel. The time when God's word was rare is now over. God's word is going. The good news is spreading in Israel. Samuel is going to be just the tip of the spear as it comes to the prophets of God. The first in this long, what will become a long-established role for Israel. There were occasional prophets before him, but after Samuel, we see that this role, this office, has been becomes a permanent fixture in the life of Israel, and that is going to continue until that prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18 appears, and his name is Jesus. Hear these words from Hebrews chapter one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know what's amazing is that's the opening prologue to the book of Hebrews. In chapter 2 and verse 1-4, it says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What is the scripture telling us is this. Once God has spoken, we are to carry that message and tell others. We who have received grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, are then compelled to share that with the world, not to keep this a secret. Given what we have learned so far in 1 Samuel, it's right for us to ask, what's going to change with Israel? Will they listen? But I think a more important question is, will we listen? What will we do? We who have received such undeserved grace. We who have heard God's word this morning for ourselves. A word of judgment for sins. A word of hope for repentance. A word that God intends to share. Now, you could be like Eli. I didn't read this part, but go back to verse 18. 
Look at the second half. After Samuel tells Eli everything, did you wrestle with this this week? Samuel's or Eli's response? What does he say? It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Really? That's all Eli's got to say? Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be? Some sort of fatalism? The, the high priest of Israel? The guy who's twice been warned by God, once by a prophet, an adult man, and now by visions that were given to a young boy in his care, has twice been warned by God of this judgment, and what he says is, God's going to do what God's going to do. Where's the repentance, Eli? Where's the casting yourselves, even after hearing, God will not atone for the sin? Why not still cry out and pray for forgiveness? This is a man who has lost all hope. And because he is so hardened in his sin and so tired, he's given up. Friend, let me just say, please, 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 pray if you find yourself there. Today is the day of salvation. God is giving you this word so that you can repent. I don't believe that God is giving us this word today to send all of us who reject him to hell because God is giving it to us today. He is desiring that we would repent. You make a choice. Yes, I understand that. You can say no to this and that further will harden your heart and drive you even further away from God. But I'm pleading with you this morning. Take this seriously. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We who have been given such undeserved grace are now compelled to share that grace-filled word to those who don't know Jesus. Joel spoke of this in the discovery class this morning on covenant life. We as disciples who gather together at South Canyon Baptist Church covenant together with one another to spread the message of the gospel. We are hearing Jesus' words in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we have this promise. Not only is God's word with us, but behold, I am with you always, he says, to the end of the age. You are not going into that home as you share the gospel with a neighbor, into your classroom as you debate a professor, or with your friends out in the woods, hiking in the hills, or in the store. You are not alone. God is with you, and he is for you, Christian. You who do not yet know the Lord, God is calling you to repent. And hear these words from Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one to whom God will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Lord, we pray that we would tremble at your word. And even much more than that, that your word would change us. We need your word. It is alive. It is powerful. 
It cuts us and shows us who we are like no skilled surgeon's knife could ever do. It reveals thoughts and intentions, desires and longings. And it brings them all into the light of your word, which is truth. And so, Lord, we pray for our need we come to you and say you alone have the capacity to meet our need. Hear us, O God. Show us your favor. Turn and look upon us in our lowly estate. Deliver us from our sin. Quicken those of us who have yet to come to faith, God. Use your word to compel them, to draw them, to lead them to grace upon grace. May they find in Jesus not only a balm for their soul, but a friend of sinners. And may we who know Christ, may we be compelled to go and share this good news, we who have benefited so deeply from your grace. Lord, you need to bring some of us to life. For some of us, we need the encouragement to keep on following you trusting you, that your word is alive even as we pray and even as we share and we see hardness and rejection, encourage us. And then there are some of us, Lord, who need to be warned and called back again. Our hearts have grown cold to hearing from you. And so, Lord, rekindle a longing and a hungering after you and your word. We as your people, Lord, confess our needs And we have every confidence that a good and faithful Father hears these and grants them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.